1: My first job in computers was also my first foray into working in corporate America. Before that, I had had a lot of retail jobs, I had worked security, and I had spent some time working in the film industry. So, I wasn't really prepared for what corporate America would offer. I kind of had this thing in the back of my head that I wouldn't like it, was a bit nervous, but it was a very good job doing front-end programming. I went in the first day and there was a bit of culture shock. I didn't know who to talk to, I didn't know how to get things done. Also, everyone had been hired very rapidly at the place I was at. So clicks had developed really quickly, and I didn't know who to go to for what, or if I wanted something, or if I had a question, I could ask my boss, but I had to stand behind a line of maybe 20 or 30 people waiting to get it done. This was during the internet bubble, so people were just hiring like crazy. Pretty much the first few weeks, I would go to work, do my programming, put in 9 or 10 hours, and then I would head home. I sat in a cube. I didn't talk to anyone. Then they started building these small offices for people. And one by one, everybody started getting pulled into their own little office. And I was still stuck in a cube. And I was pretty miserable. I still hadn't talked to anyone. I was still learning a lot. But... I was basically just going through the motions. Then one day something interesting happened. My cube was right in front of this new office that had been built, and it had glass walls so the person could see out and see what I was doing. And during my lunch break, I would sit down and surf the web, which is kind of what everybody does now, and I would look at classic Atari game. I was already at that point buying as many as I could find online. The guy whose office it was noticed this and came out one day and said, Oh, you like classic video games? I said, yeah, I'm a big fan of the Atari 2600, and I've been collecting them. He said, that's really cool. I didn't know that about you. He said, well, after you're done with work today, why don't you pop into my office before you leave? I'll show you something. I was intrigued. This was the first person to be nice to me. And after work, I went and visited him, and he had a Vectric system in his office. A complete working unit. And we sat down and started playing. We probably stayed in the office till about 11 o'clock that night playing and made plans to just basically play after work for a couple of days. This morphed, of course, into other systems showing up at the office and more and more people showing up for these classic retro gaming sessions after work. After that, corporate America seemed a lot more friendly to me. I started to realize these were all just people like me, and good times were to follow. But it all started with a kind person with a working Vectric. On today's show, we're going to talk about the Vectric system. We'll talk about its creation, its way too short run, some of the games it has, the technology behind it, and we'll throw in a few surprises here and there. We have an information-packed episode for you, so without further ado, let's start the show. The Vectric system began, like many technological advancements began, with surplus parts. Mike Purvis and John Ross, who worked at Western Technologies Smith Engineering, had a lot of cheap cathode ray tube screens lying around that their company had picked up from a liquidator. And they thought, well, how can we use these things to make something cool? So they sat down and thought that they could probably use these to make a small all-in-one gaming system using vector graphics. A little bit about Smith Engineering Western Technologies. It was a video game company that was started by Jay Smith who had previously worked at Mattel. Jay was the head of the Western Technologies Engineering Division so he said okay let's give this all-in-one a shot and the project would be given various names over its life run. The Mini Arcade, the HP 3000, and the Vector X. By the spring of 1981 Kenner had optioned this mini arcade, and had planned to release it on a 5-inch black-and-white screen. However, a couple of months later, it decided to pass. A couple of more months roll around, and another company starts getting interested in the project, and that company is General Consumer Electronics. They decided to lease the mini arcade after their president, Greg Krakauer, saw the concept and an early working model, and thought, Wow, this thing's gangbusters. Of course, a couple of modifications were made to the system. The screen was increased in size, and the name was changed to Vectrix. In the fall of 81, work had begun on the actual Vectrix prototype, with the goal of the main machine and a dozen games being completed by the early summer of 1982. The hardware was designed by John Ross. The system ROM, or exec, would be made by Gary Carr and John Hall. The task of designing the look and feel of the Vectrix went to Walter Nakano and Colin Voles, both of whom had been model builders. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen a Vectrix before, but it bears a striking resemblance to the early Macintosh computer and precedes that Macintosh by full two years. So while many people can claim how differently Apple thinks, perhaps they just happen to think like Walter Nakano and Colin Voles. by early 1982, some more changes were applied to the Vectrix the original processor was stripped out because it was too slow and John Hall would leave to work on the initial game for the system Mindstorm so Gary Carr looking at the work they had done decided that it was not suitable and decided to start over at this point and started working on his own system rom the system rom for the Vectrix would be given the acronym of rom for runtime monitor as the name implies, the Vectrix is completely vector-based. According to the service manual, and I quote, As a general description, the HP3000 is a self-contained video system intended for home use. The system includes its own 9-inch black-and-white monitor screen and a 3-inch permanent magnet speaker. Plug-in ROM-type cartridges are available, offering arcade-type video and sound gameplay. No external TV receiver hookup is needed or provided for. A front panel storable controller allows control over the game via joystick and push-button action switches. For two-player operation, a second controller, identical to the single-player controller, is available as an accessory product. Both controllers attach to the main game console through wire-coiled telephone-style cables. Both controllers attach to the main game console through wire-coiled telephone-style cables. There is a consumer power switch volume control on the front panel as well as a game reset button. A consumer-adjustable brightness control is located on the main console rear housing. So, that's the Vectrex in a nutshell. So, a little bit about vector graphics. Vector graphics are the kind of graphics you see in arcade games like Battlezone, Asteroids, and Tempest. And they're really sharp which allowed the Vectrix to produce some really visually outstanding games that had scaling and rotation. Now, Vector Graphics had been in use with coin-op games since the late 1970s. They had started with Cinematronic Space Wars in 78, but probably the most famous Vector-based graphics game is Asteroids. So here's a quick explanation of the difference between Vector Graphics and Raster Graphics. Most game displays used raster displays, where the electron gun that displays pictures on the screen, like your television set, scans down the screen horizontally, anywhere from 30 to 60 times a second, really fast, and draws small blocks called pixels. Vector graphics, instead of that horizontal shooting, have a gun draw to exact locations only using x and y coordinates. Because of this, they require special equipment, which is why the Vectrex is self-contained, but because they aim at a specific point. The graphics are much cleaner and crisper than raster. And this allows for great wireframe 3D effects, which also answers the tangential question, why are all the Vectrix games done in wireframe? Because that's the technology built into the system. So popular was Asteroids, and so on the mind of the people making the Vectrex at the time, that the game that came with the system that was built into it, Mindstorm, was a direct ripoff of the arcade hit Asteroids. The Vectrix arcade system was introduced in June of 1982 at the Summer Consumer Electronics Show and would be available for purchase at $200 in November of that year. Now, Atari and ColecoVision and other systems had been out, and they all attached to your TV. The Vectrix was nothing like anything people had seen before. With its built-in monitor and detachable control board, the Vectrix had a sleek feel and form that captured the imagination of a lot of forward-thinking tech people. In fact, one of the selling points of the system is that a family might only have one TV. So, if you wanted to buy a system that hooked up to your TV, you couldn't watch TV while your kids were playing video games. So, get a Vectrix. It's portable. It's got its own handle. You could take it from room to room, and the kids could play anywhere while you could watch TV. A great selling point.
0: This is Vectrex, the only video game system with its own video screen. Take it anywhere. Just plug it in. It's your own personal arcade. A high-performance system with a built-in game plus a whole collection of arcade cartridges like Scramble, Pole Position, Berserk. So if you're into video games, forget the TV. Get into Vectrex. Light Pen and 3D Imager available.
1: In March of 1983, Milton Bradley was looking around and said, Wow, everybody else is getting into the video game business. We better get on that. And they purchased GCE and acquired the Vectrix. Milton Bradley, a very well-established company at the time, had great distribution channels and quickly expanded the Vectrix distribution to overseas markets. In May of 1983, it would show up in Europe, and in June of 1983, it showed up in Japan. The various variations of the Vectrix are as follows. The US release was by GCE. The Japanese release was by Bandai. The Canadian release was by Milton Bradley of Canada. All of the European releases were by Milton Bradley Europe. And the Australian Vectrix was released by Milton Bradley. By late summer, 83, Distribution was in full swing, and it looked like the Vectrix was on its way to great things. Then that horrible event of 1983 happened the video game crash. Milton Bradley would close down GCE and decided to distribute the Vectrix itself and started lowering the price. First, it dropped from $199 to $150, then later to $100. This went on for a bit, but pretty much the Vectrix was a dead system at that point. Eventually, they would release all rights back to Smith Engineering. A couple of years later, the Vectrix did show up again when Abel and Associates took the Vectrix and converted it into an entertainment device. You might still see these in older arcades. It's one of those systems where you put your quarter in, and then you pick color, and it tells you what your personality is, which is pretty funny since the Vectrix is a monochrome system, and you're doing a color test. If you get to go to a classic arcade, start looking around if you're familiar with the Vectrix technology. You might find homemade systems that were used making a Vectrix system since it was so inexpensive to get. In 1988, Smith Engineering considered resurrecting the Vectrix, but this time as a handheld unit. But when they brought the idea to Milton Bradley, they thought that the $100 price tag of the unit would make it completely unsellable. So the idea was scrapped. Later that year... Nintendo's Game Boy was released, to huge commercial success. For some reason, even though that happened, the idea of a handheld Vectrix concept was never revived. Real shame. So, we know a little bit about the hardware and the history of the system, but what about the games? As I said, Vectrix was sold with one built-in game. So, even if you never bought any of the cartridges, you always had a very exciting game called Mindstorm you could play. And that was a derivative of Asteroids. All in all, Just over two dozen games would be sold in cartridge form for the Vectrex, and those would be plugged into the right side of the console. Most of those games were licensed releases or copies of already existing popular games. By the middle of 1982, you already had some great games out. Scramble, Mindstorm, Ripoff, Star Trek, and Berserk. And they're starting to work on various original games. But something was always bothering the people. The games were in monochrome. And when you have a monochrome system, how do you get around that? Overlays. Overlays had originated in coin-ops and served tons of purposes, most famously probably in games like Space Invaders or Breakout, where you could put a piece of plastic over the screen that had colors over a certain fields to basically fake color. And as a person who played early Space Invaders, I actually always thought that the graphics were color and was surprised later in life to find out that they were using a color overlay. It's a very effective way to add technology where there was none. The overlay job for the Vectric system was given to Miva Philosetta. Designing overlays is not an easy job, especially when they're an afterthought. And that's exactly what happened with the Vectrix overlay design decision. The game developers and designers would make the games with no thought in mind as to how the overlays would work. So then they would show the game to Miva who would have to suddenly come up with an overlay to work in that particular game. More often than not, Meva would design the overlays with lettering and such that would cover parts of the game area. So then the programmer would have to go back and try to alter the game to account for this. Kids, remember, planning is a very important part of game development. Mindstorm big game that came with the system. Now, in Wave 13 the game breaks. And why is that? Well, each level of Mindstorm is described by an entry in an array. The array would describe details, the type of mines, all that great stuff. Unfortunately, the array only allowed for 13 entries, so when you got past level 13 usually the game would break at that point. People would play and they at that point would get sick of the game, but If you were really angry and wanted to play longer, you had to complain to Vectrix, and some people did. If you did, you would be sent a copy of Mindstorm 2. And this is a bug-free version of Mindstorm, and you can get past level 13. Because very few people bothered to, or I guess enjoyed Mindstorm to that point, it is one of the rarer Vectrix games to own. Now, with a little tips on how to play Mindstorm, is the how-to-play video game series from the 1980s.
0: Mindstorm, a game that really shows off the capabilities of Vectrex, presents the player with a hostile environment in deep space. The player's ship begins in the center of the screen and can be maneuvered to any position, though it is preferable to stay put and fire at the mines in the order they approach you. When a large mine is hit, it splits into two medium mines, which split into a pair of small mines, so the player has a lot of shooting to do. At the beginning of each minefield, you see the beautiful graphic of an alien mine layer seeding the universe with explosives. Initially, there are four large mines in the first field. You can spread a lot of fire around the screen, but you'll have to be prepared to do a lot of fancy shooting to eliminate all the small mines that strategy creates. Keep your eyes wide for the possible entrance of the mine layer, which will look like a flying saucer. The mine layer's job is to add a few more large mines to the screen, so try to nail him as soon as he appears. Watch the top of the screen as we show you that again. Picking up where we left off, watch as we elude the handful of mines left on screen. You have to be careful because your ship has such great speed that anything but a slight nudge of the thrust button will send you flying across the universe, possibly right into a mine. Don't worry about centering your ship on screen before killing the last mine as you would do in Atari's asteroids, because the next minefield automatically places you in the center of the screen. Pick your shots with more care in the second minefield as it contains fireball mines, the squarish objects, that hurl fireballs at your ship when you hit them. Try to pick off a lot of regular floating mines before tackling the fireballs. But when you have no choice, use this technique. Wait until you have a shot at the dead center of a fireball mine, then let loose a stream of fire. Hopefully your first shot will explode the mine and your following shots will take out the fireball before it gets anywhere near you. Be ready to spin around, though, in case your fire, which wraps around screen, happens to explode a fireball mine by mistake. Minefield 3 contains a third type of enemy, the magnetic mine that quickly homes in on your position. Magnetic mines look like little crosses. When they close in on your ship, use the escape button. Use it a couple of times if necessary until you find a good position. That's
1: good stuff. So as I said, there are over two dozen games made for the Vectric system, but there are actually many more homebrew titles, and that's because Smith Engineering, who owns the rights to the Vectrics, has allowed not-for-profits to distribute any of the Vectrics' duplicable items, and that includes games, overlays, manuals, and because of this and the system's Unique technology. It has been a great place for the homebrew community. And over forty homebrew titles have been released. Most recently in two thousand eight, a great game called Vectrexians by Christoph Tutz was released. And if you have a Vectrex or a Vectrix emulator, you should really check that out. Like any system, there were a bunch of unreleased games and prototypes. One of my favorite things is when a company does co-branding on a game, and the Vectrix had two companies that did co-branding. One that got released, one that didn't. The one that got released was by the liquor company Mr. Boston, who gave out a limited number of co-branded cartridges of Clean Sweep. The box for the game had a Mr. Boston sticker on it, and the overlay was basically the same as the regular Clean Sweep, but with the Mr. Boston logo. Another game that never came out, sadly, was for Newport Cigarettes, and they had commissioned a version of Web Wars, and it would feature Newport Cigarettes Presents Web Wars on the title screen. The game was sent to Newport, but it was never distributed, sadly. Now, while the Vectrix did not have a wealth of peripherals, it did have some interesting ones. Some of the more basic and mundane ones. You could buy an additional controller, you could buy a carrying case for the Vectrix, and a dust cover for the Vectrix. But the peripherals get a little bit more exciting from there, because the Vectrix had 3D imager goggles several years before Sega would do the same thing. The Vectrix 3D imager goggles worked by spinning a disc, which is half black and half colored, that radiates from the center between the viewer's eyes and the Vectrix screen. The Vectrix games that worked with it were synchronized to this rotation of the disc and would draw vectors corresponding to a particular color and or particular eye. Thus, only one eye will see the Vectrix screen and its associated image at any one time while the other sees nothing. These colored discs would come with a particular 3D game. The 3D imager was only sold in the U.S. in 1984, and in very small amounts. The Vectrix at this point was dying, and this was a first in the video game industry. As I've said, three or four years before Sega would do the same. Sega would, in fact, have to pull a TV commercial claiming that they were the first to do so. The Vectrix 3D imager plugs into the extra controller port on your Vectrix, then you wear the imager, it's quite uncomfortable, and it works really well for early technology. But, of course, like all 3D technology, it had a couple of problems, and because of the way the glasses worked, sometimes you would see double images, and you would have focus problems, which caused headaches for some people, The imager would come bundled with a 3D version of Mindstorm. I can't stop with that Mindstorm. And two other games were released. 3D Narrow Escape and 3D Crazy Coaster, which was a roller coaster simulation. Three games that were in development that were never finished, which would have been awesome. 3D Pole Position, Hangman which would have also used a touchscreen prototype accessory, and Tour de France. An accessory that I desperately wanted as a kid was the Vectrix Light Pen. The Light Pen allowed for you to draw directly on the Vectrix screen and came packaged with Art Master, which was a drawing program. Three other cartridges would eventually be made that used the Light Pen. Melody Master, which was a music program that allowed you to write music notes on the screen, and AnimAction, which was an animated drawing program. There were three games that came out for the light pen, but there were also unreleased prototypes for the light pen. Engine Analyzer, Melody Master 2, and Mailplane. Engine Analyzer might have been a really interesting piece of software because it would have been used as a diagnostic tool for auto mechanics using the Vectrix. Very flexible technology. The cathode ray display tube is a Samsung Model 240 RB40 monochrome unit which measures 9 by 11 inches and displays a picture of 240 millimeter diagonal. A vector CRT display does not require special tube and differs from standard raster-based television sets only in the control circuits. Rather than use a sawtooth wave to direct the internal electron beam in a raster pattern, Digital to analog converters drive horizontal and vertical deflection electromagnets. Those deflection electromagnets are similar to the yoke found in standard televisions. The high voltage transformer and picture tube are also off the shelf, such that you would find in any small black and white television. The CPU is a Motorola 68A09 running at 1.5 MHz. The RAM 1KB, 2 4-bit 2114 chips. ROM is 8 kilobytes, one 8-bit, 2363 chip. Sound is provided by a General Instruments AY38912, and it resonates out of a 3-inch electrodynamic paper cone speaker. And technical overview. The Vectrex was ahead of its time as a standalone unit. Now, some might say it's the only one. But as a standalone, I like to think of it as the grandfather of portable units that we carry today. And since these Game Boys are some of the best-selling video game units of all time, you can say that the Vectrix is a system that broke ground for what would be the most popular video game systems ever made. It's a shame we never got to see the Vectrix handheld, but... Out there are people making mods and homebrew systems all the time. So keep your eyes open, watch some of the better homebrew people, and perhaps we'll see that homebrew Vectrix handheld one day and see how it works as compared to the Nintendo Game Boys of the late 80s. Retroist. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Facebook.com slash Retroist and Twitter.com slash Retroist. So why not drop by and follow me and be my friend? Thanks to Peachy for all the musical cues you hear in the show. If you have some musical needs, why not contact Peachy at peachy at Retroist.com. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Final frontier
0: this has been a risk production goodbye